If you would, please take a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to take a little break from Isaiah, Christmas time, to look at six Christmas cards, six Christmas portraits from four artists, four evangelists. Uh, Every evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, evangelist, gospel writer, you might say, every one of them was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we can trust their writings, but... It's important to remember that inspiration, that empowerment, that superintending of the Holy Spirit did not kill their personality, so to speak. They each have a unique story and portrait perspective of Jesus's birth and incarnation. So let's see what they each teach us about Christmas, about Jesus's birth. This week, we'll look at Matthew 1, the only account of uh, Joseph and the angel. So... Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let us pray. Oh God, you're good. And what you do is good. And we pray that on a cold and gloomy morning, you would shine in our hearts with the light of your word, the light of your hope, the light of your truth, the light of your savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You're part of a story, a grand drama, and you have an important part to play. But the director is not powerless without you. And this play is not the night at the improv. You're part of a story. In today's passage, you're going to see that Joseph was part of a grand drama as well. You have an important part to play. Was Joseph's part more important than yours? In a way, that's beside the point, because what's most important for you is that you play your part well, because it's the only one you can play. And the director of this play, this story, this drama, he is, he is not powerless without you. Makes me think of Mordecai's words to his cousin Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And then again, this is not night at the improv. The answer is not to think up the most expressive role that you could possibly play. To stick out, to be true to yourself. No, no, no. Yourself might mislead you because of selfishness or a thousand other things. No, you don't want to stick out in this play. 
You want to fit in with the grand symphony of life. You don't want to be the wrong note that sticks out in the middle of Beethoven's fifth. Because this story that you're part of, well, it's hard enough to navigate life when we listen well, when we do what God commands. It's even harder when we go our own way. <clears throat> and I think you'll see all of that in this story. You'll also see difficult circumstances, difficult choices, the limits of human wisdom, and the difficulties that remain when we follow God's path. But you'll also see this. God meets difficult circumstances with his divine presence, and he demands that we make a choice. We see that unfold this morning in four scenes. The first one is this, an unexpected pregnancy. An unexpected pregnancy in verses 18 and 19. Now notice I didn't say unplanned because someone planned it, but it wasn't Mary. It wasn't Joseph. This was unexpected to both of them. Verse 18 says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, three B words here about this verse, betrothed before and baby, betrothed. Betrothed, this was like an engagement, but it was more serious, but not quite as serious as a marriage. In Jewish tradition, betrothal took place before witnesses and man and woman, they, they stated their intent to marry. And from there, they would be called husband and wife, even though the wife, as young as 13, remained at home with her parents for about a year. So they go through, they state all these things at the betrothal, and then she goes home and lives with her parents for about a year until the actual wedding, until the consummation of their physical relationship. Speaking of which, before betrothal has taken place for Mary and Joseph, but it is still, according to the text, before they came together, before the two had become one flesh, before that, something happens. Baby, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, Luke 1 explains this, at least a little. Both authors, Matthew and Luke, they, they seem scientifically aware of the normal process of conception. They're not absent-minded. They're not clueless when it comes to science. But they mention, in this instance, how unnatural, how supernatural all of this is. If the miraculous nature of this bothers you, then... Maybe you have a problem with miracles, not with scripture, but even Joseph didn't understand these unexpected circumstances at first, before it was explained to him. Notice verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, husband, because they're betrothed, more than an engagement, not quite a marriage, not yet. It's leading to that. But what is the husband thinking? What is Joseph thinking? Apparently, he's thinking that Mary must have been unfaithful. He knows where babies normally come from. How could just Joseph, he's a just man, how could he, how could he think that about Mary? Because betrothed women like Mary may not have known their future husbands all that well and vice versa. Uh, if you watch the animated film, The Star, uh, it's about Star of Wonder, Star of Bright, that star. If you watch that film, then you'll see the 
Joseph, sit down. I need to tell you something seen. But we don't know if that actually happened. What did Joseph think? We can't know for sure. He likely assumed the obvious. How obvious was it? And he resolved to act as righteously as he knew how when an unexpected pregnancy had forced its way into his life. To call off the wedding at this point after the betrothal, that required a divorce. He could do that loudly and publicly. But because he was righteous, it says, he just, he resolved to do it quietly. Though Mary had apparently, so he thought, been unfaithful, shamed, embarrassed him. Just Joseph would not embarrass Mary. Joseph acted the way a righteous man would with what he knew. But keep in mind, he didn't know all, did he? Not yet. He had no idea all that God was calling him to do. Joseph did the best he could with his human knowledge and wisdom. Wonder if he was scared in those circumstances because unexpected pregnancies can be scary. For that reason, a little over a week ago, I wrote to Rich Bennett, president of Life Network, a ministry here in town that we support, Forest Gate, that counsels numerous women and men who encounter unexpected pregnancies. Now, he wrote me a page and a half. I'm only going to share a small portion of it with you. But he said this, women and men facing unexpected pregnancies here in our community, they react similarly to what Mary and Joseph did when learning of a pregnancy they weren't expecting. How will I afford this? What about school or my job? What about my dreams? I had other plans for my life at this time. Until these questions can begin to be answered, he said, it's hard to even think about the little life that's now growing inside a woman facing an unexpected pregnancy. Important tip, he says. If you ever encounter someone facing an unexpected pregnancy, talk to her about her or him about him. That's what we do at our centers before we begin to talk about the baby, provide an ultrasound, etc. Someone taking time to hear how she's feeling, to begin to process how to address her concerns is the key to her ultimately feeling safe enough to begin to consider choosing to parent or making an adoption plan. Scary stuff, maybe. Just Joseph was facing an unexpected pregnancy. He was doing the best he could, but he needed help. He was about to get it. He needed direction. He needed divine wisdom. He didn't know he needed it, maybe. And it would come in an unexpected way. That's what we see next. After an unexpected pregnancy, we see, secondly, an angelic proclamation. An angelic proclamation in verses 20 and 21. Things are about to get interesting. Joseph is plotting, planning when the angel of the Lord intervenes. Now, side note, don't expect that to happen to you when you face a difficult decision. An angel just appearing and proclaiming exactly what to do. And why is that? Because God has already spoken to us. He's spoken to us in 66 different books of Scripture. It is no mystery how God wants us to live and pray and look to Him in the midst of life. His Word is still a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. But Joseph, facing these extraordinary circumstances, he gets an extraordinary message, an extraordinary messenger, doesn't he? Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of David. Joseph, the lowly carpenter, is a descendant of mighty King David. Do not fear. Son of David, do not fear. There are numerous Isaiah 7 parallels going on here. Isaiah 7 is the first mention of Emmanuel, the child that is to be conceived by a virgin. And King Ahaz, back in Isaiah 7, he is called in this circumstance to trust God. But if you know the story, you'll know that King Ahaz gives in to fear. He will not trust God. And years later, here is another son of King David, another descendant, called to trust and obey and not fear. Oh, and what potential fears were there? Well, Joseph was about to marry a pregnant woman in the first century in Israel. Most people would assume that he was the father of this child if that were to happen. They would assume that he was the one who was unfaithful, that he couldn't wait until the wedding day. His reputation was at stake as well as his business prospects in a very religious town. I'm sure there were other carpenters that people could go to. But the angel says, don't fear, Joseph. Don't fear to take her as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Had he heard this before? Had he and Mary talked? Had he talked with one of the relatives, someone who believed Mary, someone who was skeptical? We, we don't know. Not exactly. But the angel has more to say. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The you is singular. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. The angel presumes Joseph will do this. He will take Mary as his wife. He will establish Jesus's legal genealogy and then he will do the duty of a father and name his son. Now, of course, Joseph's duty pales in comparison to the mission of this child. He will save his people from their sins. What do you see about Jesus's mission? It is spiritual. His mission is to bridge the gap between God and his people by saving his people from their sin, which alienates them from a holy God. He enables God to be with us once again. That's what he will do. And what he won't do is also notable. He won't be the national liberator to save them from Rome. His kingdom would not be of this world. His people would have to be content to be aliens, exiles, strangers. As First Peter 2 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's saying this not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, glorious light. We have a mission to be ambassadors of the king, announcing his rescue mission, his terms of peace. Joseph had a mission, slightly different mission, but hugely important. A mission that, notice, he did not discern simply by searching his heart. And Joseph was a just man, a good man, Scripture says. But Joseph's good intentions would have led him to divorce the mother of our Lord 
unless an angel had interrupted his good night's sleep. Joseph was not called to write his own story, was he? Joseph was called to play the part that God had assigned him in this story. Now, why mention that? Because we live in an age of what has been called expressive individualism. I need to be true to myself. I need to follow my passion as if every passion is equally good, as if the heart is not deceitful and wicked without Christ, as Jeremiah says. As someone I know once said, the gospel changes what we love. We need that. We need the gospel to change what we love, to help me love the things that God loves. That's not the way our world thinks, is it? And you know, that's not new. That didn't happen yesterday or two years ago. It's been that way at least since the late 80s when they filmed the movie Dead Poets Society. I thought of that this week. There's this one scene where Robin Williams, the avant-garde prep school teacher, is extolling poetry's revelation of the meaning of life, especially these lines from Walt Whitman. He says, what's, what's the point of all this? That you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. And you may contribute a verse, he says. And Whitman is almost right, but he's also dreadfully wrong. Because there is a powerful play, and we do have a part in it. We have a part to play, but we don't contribute the verse as if it's a new verse. Because the powerful playwright has already written the story. We're not called to write some magnificent verse so that the world can behold us. We're called to play the part that God has written. We're called to read the verse, quote the lines, follow the path that God has given to us. That verse, that path which God has written, doesn't free us from all pain, all difficulty, no. But it does give us purpose. It does give us clear direction. And along the path, we will find God's presence as well to help us with the difficulty, to help us with the confusion. That's what an angelic proclamation shows us. And after that, we also see this. Thirdly, we see a prophetic explanation, a prophetic explanation in verses 22 and 23. Start reading with me along um, in verse 21, where he says, this is the angel speaking. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Maybe verses 22 and 23 are still the angel's words, some think. Maybe they're Matthew's explanation to us, his readers. Either way, we see, and Joseph, the devout Jew, probably sees the puzzle pieces coming together. There was that prophecy about the virgin giving birth. And think about what has happened so far. Joseph's own wisdom nearly led him astray. He was thinking of divorcing Mary, to which the angel says, essentially, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. And then the angel tells Joseph about his mission and how it fits into the bigger mission of God. It's not simply about you, Joseph, though you do have a part to play. Something bigger is going on here. And what is happening now? 
Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is showing all of us this larger story. He is placing all of this, this one story within the larger story for all of us, his readers. And God has been writing this story for at least 700 years, at least since Isaiah and King Ahaz. But actually, if you read the rest of scripture, you realize it was before that, back in Genesis, actually back before Genesis, before the beginning. And that is why we aren't simply called to write our own story, because there's a bigger story, a bigger story that makes sense of all the stories of all of life. The story of paradise lost, the story of a people who are wandering, who are aimless, who are banished from paradise, banished from the creator because of their own foolishness, a story of a rescuer who will come and rescue his people, who will restore paradise once again, a story of a rescuer named Jesus, also called Emmanuel. Jesus comes from Yeshua or Joshua. It means the Lord saves, the Lord delivers. In Emmanuel, it's three Hebrew words crammed together. It means God with us. One author explains this. The point is not that Jesus ever bore Emmanuel as an actual name, but that it indicates his role, bringing God's presence to man. This meaning is related to that of his actual name, Jesus, in that it is sin which separates man from God's presence so that salvation from sin results in God with us. You, like Joseph, like all of us, need salvation from sin. You need God's presence because you're part of a story, a story that turns south somewhere around Genesis 3, a story is being redeemed and you have a part to play, but this story is much bigger than you. It's a cosmic drama a story of the whole world. And God has been telling it bit by bit for thousands of years. And it took an angel and a prophet for Joseph to see his place in this story. And you know, even once he saw it, difficulties still remain for Joseph. He was still betrothed to a pregnant woman. And the rest of the city was unlikely to understand the explanation of it all. But God had spoken clearly about Joseph's role in the bigger story. Divine wisdom had given him a path through the difficulty. How would Joseph respond? And what can we learn from that? After a prophetic explanation, we also see fourthly and finally an obedient conclusion. An obedient conclusion in verses 24 in 25, <clears throat> Joseph obeyed the command. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Joseph rightly sees this is a command. He obeys. He marries that girl. Might have been an awkward wedding. He might have been a little stressed. He might have heard rumors, slander, snide remarks, all of the above. But he knew what the angel said. Joseph married Mary, he took his wife, verse 25, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. He knew her not until she had given birth. We would do well to notice the restraint, the restraint that Joseph shows, the restraint in the language of the story itself. Joseph did not know 
marry, which means they did not consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. Because Joseph wanted there to be no doubt. Joseph knew what the prophecy said. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Joseph's restraint ensured that that would be true. But the, again, the language itself is restrained. Matthew, the author, he doesn't spell it out. He uses nuance, subtlety, innuendo. We should notice this because we live in an age of oversharing, don't we? Keep in mind, I'm a millennial. I'm not a boomer. This is not an angry, get off my lawn rant here. At least I don't think it is. I'm a millennial. Even I think we need to dial this back. And for better or worse, many of you know, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I am not a stoic. Sometimes I wish I was. As I said to some pastor friends recently, my challenge is not to let the emotions wag the pastor. Every thought doesn't need to be shared. Every emotion doesn't need to be vented publicly. Listen to your emotions. Good idea. Share your emotions. Maybe. Maybe not. Restraint. Self-control. These are fruits of the spirit or fruit if you prefer the singular. They're signs of Christian maturity. Sometimes the most mature thing you can do is not to say what you really want. Sometimes the most mature thing you can do is not to say what you really want to say. Joseph is a model for us. Self-control of restraint. He marries the woman that all of the town is probably gossiping about. He waits to know her. Because he wants the prophecy to be fulfilled. And then he obeys once again. He called his name Jesus. This is not just a throwaway line. In naming the child, Joseph is fulfilling his role as Jesus' legal earthly father. Joseph raised a child that didn't have his DNA. Now, Joseph didn't know what DNA was. I get it. But on one level, he knew this is not my child. He also knew that my heavenly father has called me to be the earthly father of this child. Despite any awkwardness, despite any difficulty, God's divine presence, his divine wisdom enabled Joseph to make a difficult decision. And his decision, of course, had a huge impact on the future. And your life is both very different from his, but also very similar. Because you too are called to obey and light of the gospel story, the good news. You too are part of this grand story. You need the Savior Jesus to save you from your sins, just like Joseph did. You need his wisdom. You need his direction. And you're called to respond accordingly. If you've never believed the gospel, you, my friend, have a big decision to make. And you need God's help to make it. If you've believed already, then you're called to deeper obedience. How now shall I live? How shall I present my body as a living sacrifice? As Romans 12, 1 says, how shall I be transformed by the renewal of my mind instead of being conformed to the world around me? And if you've believed in Christ and it's been so long ago that you've forgotten the cost of discipleship, not thinking about it on a regular basis, then what is he calling you to right now? How is God calling you to live in light of the gospel? What decisions 
or divine wisdom in God's divine presence directing you to make? What is God's promise of security and salvation free you to do? How does it free you to make the difficult but righteous choices in your life? Does your life reflect that freedom? Does your life reflect the love, joy, peace, patience, and all those other fruits that the gospel gives? Are you joyous when life is grand and when life is gritty? When life is grand, do you rejoice in the creator even more than you rejoice in the good temporal gifts that he gives? And when life is gritty and messy and hard, is the joy of the Lord still your strength even then? Now, your life is not Joseph's life, true enough. You may not be a carpenter in the first century. I'm pretty sure you're not. Your life may not be as complicated or as gritty as Joseph's. Then again, you might think it's more complicated. But for all of us, the gospel story has a way of not just staying up in the clouds and being nice and cuddly and warm. It has a way of parking itself right in our face, forcing us to respond. Forcing us to make a decision. Maybe it seems like a difficult choice. Maybe it seems like the only choice. The role assigned to us by a good director. By a good leader. Who has a plan for all of us, including me. Who promises to be with me, whatever life brings. No matter how difficult. No matter how complicated. No matter how confusing. Was life simpler back then? Simpler, harder, or about the same? What about God's provision, his solution, his salvation? Is his provision any less now than it was then? She will bear a son, the angel said, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us is still with us. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good, and what you do is good. You are with us. You are good on cold and cloudy and gloomy mornings. You are with us when the sun is shining and life feels grand. Oh, Father, would you show us your goodness? Would you remind us of all your precious promises, the promise of your presence, salvation, freedom from sin, from the guilt of sin, from the punishment of sin, and one day from the presence of sin altogether. Remind us of these good and precious promises and help us cling to you. We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.